Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Miriam Zai, CEO of Isano Health which she co-founded with the vision to make proactive and personalized breast health monitoring accessible to all women everywhere. And she has over 14 years of experience in product and business development. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. We are today here with Mariam from Isono Health. They are bringing AI to health and solving a big, big problem for women's health. So welcome, Mariam. And first, I would like you to tell us what the world would look like if you and Isona Health is really, really successful in the future? Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. And uh, our vision uh, in general with Isona Health is to make health monitoring more accessible, more personalized. So on a bigger vision, uh, people would have more access to medical devices and tools that allow them to take charge of their own health and be more proactive about their health monitoring. One of our first missions is focus on breast cancer screening and and uh, in, in our vision, uh, every woman would have access to early detection and monitoring of breast cancer. And uh, hopefully no woman has to die from breast cancer, especially if it's detected early. Breast cancer has really good prognosis. But unfortunately, today, many breast cancers are missed uh, uh, both in the U.S. and globally because of lack, a lack of access and adoption to breast cancer screening. So we hope to improve more access, make it more consistently accurate, and improve adoption to breast cancer screening so that we can find all cancers at early stages and save women's lives. And where you are like today and how we're going to get from today to this future? Yeah, of course. So we are a startup and uh, we are waiting our FDA clearance, hopefully soon. And as we await our FDA clearance, we're doing uh, market development and uh, clinical development uh, in order to be able to scale this uh, from where we are right now uh, to a platform that can be used for screening on a wide scale. We need more clinical data and we need to expand our regulatory indication. So, and globally, we obviously need um, uh, to have more resources to be able to bring this also to emerging markets or under resourced areas where uh, there's no access to care. And like, I imagine that the market for a technology like that, it's really big, but let's talk a little bit about it first. Like how many screenings we are talking about and when a woman should be doing the screening for breast cancer? Depends on where you live. Uh, and the guidances are different. It's typically for women over age uh, 40 or 50. Unless you have a family history of breast cancer considered high risk, in which case you will start sooner. Also, these guidance, uh, there are studies have shown that these guidances may not apply the same to women of different backgrounds and ethnicities. So there needs to be more studies to show where at what age you need to start screening for women of different backgrounds. So that's a really good point. And uh, there are, uh, you know, there's evidence that show that 
for example, Asian women or African-American women would potentially uh, need to start screening at earlier stages. So uh, there needs to be more studies to know exactly. And this is one of our visions is that instead of one solution for all, it should be personalized. It should be based on the pers- that specific person's uh, background, not only ethnicity, but also genetic factors. So one solution saying that every woman starts to 50 or 40 is uh, something that is based on uh, large population-based studies, but it should be more personalized. So that's uh, that's one thing. But today's guidance says, depending on where you live, is uh, age 40 or 50. And uh, in U.S., there are about 100 million women over age uh, 40 that could be uh, potentially a candidate for breast cancer screening. Only about half of those women currently get regular mammograms. So either it's because of lack of access or lack of adoption. About a third of women after their first mammogram never go back for a second one. That's due to poor experience or getting convenient. Just just thinking, like, why did they go back like after the first? As I said, uh, partially because mammogram, which is right now the standard of care, is painful, uh, is x-ray radiation, and you have to schedule an appointment to go to a clinician's office. So after there's about right now has 67% of women who are eligible to get a mammogram, they go for routine screening. And uh, as I said, part of that is access. Part of that is inconvenience. And part of it is that women necessarily don't like the experience. It's, ex- it's painful. In a mammogram, I'm not sure you've seen it, but essentially a woman's breast is placed between two plates and, the, and pressed very hard. So it's quite painful. Yeah. So, uh, but even that, as I said, mammogram is uh, is life saving, and uh, a lot of women don't get the routine mammogram. So, one of our missions is to improve adoption of breast cancer screening. But one of the limitations, big limitations of mammogram beyond adoption, is also the X-ray technology in mammogram has limited accuracy in women who have dense breasts. And uh, the story of the company and how we started the company is that we had friends who had dense breasts and their uh, breast cancer missed was until it was unfortunately too late. So why does that happen is because x-ray in women who have dense breasts uh, almost looks like a a white cloud or masks lesions at early stages. As a result of that, lesions are missed. Uh, today, about one in three breast cancers are missed at early stages. And uh, when I started, when we started looking into this, we initially thought that this might be a small portion of the population. When we realized that about 45 to 50% of women in the U.S. have dense breasts, and if you go to Asia, for example, that's about 70% of women have dense breasts, then we realized that this is a big problem that affects hundreds of millions of women. So, um, 70%? 17 uh, Asian women in U.S. Uh, oh. in, uh, in U.S. the numbers are about 45 to 50 percent of women. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Nearly half of women. And the uh, sensitivity of mammogram in women who have dense breasts is less than 50%. So it's not adequate. As a result, there's been a lot of advocacy around adding ultrasound for breast cancer screening. But uh, what are the challenges? The challenge is that with the handheld ultrasound probes, I'm not sure if you've seen one, they essentially have a probe that they move over the surface to capture uh, image, whether from breasts or other body parts. 
and it's highly operator dependent. It's also for screening purposes is slow if you want to scan the whole breast. And another challenge is that simply not enough ultrasound techs and they're expensive. So it's hard to deploy large scale breast cancer screening with that kind of, that kind of system. Today it's used mostly for diagnostic purposes. When you say operator dependent, you are saying that it's in the sense that you need to have the operator or the exam itself will be different depending on the operator. So you're going to have like a noise in the exam because you have like a human operator doing that. Yeah, it's the image quality is highly operator dependent. So you do need a tech uh, that is uh, trained and depending on the experience and training of your tech, you're going to get different results. So that's also uh, results in disparity uh, in quality of care because uh, if you if you have a new tech that has not have many years of experience, then you probably get not as good results as a super experienced tech. So that's what we are doing. We're st- uh, we are standardizing the accuracy because our image acquisition is not automatically hands-free without the need for attack. There has been efforts to make uh, ultrasound automated, but these machines are typically $200,000. They are big capital equipment that are not really accessible or scalable or portable in a practical way. So our system is both not only portable, but also automated, which means that it doesn't need an ultrasound tech to operate it, a medical assistant, a nurse, a midwife can operate the system. Therefore, it can be deployed in many more settings, point of care setting, in mobile healthcare vans. It can even come to home and be done at home. So there's a lot of different venues that the scan can be done because of the fact that image acquisition is done automatically. So it opens the door for more access, and we hope by making it more easier, more convenient, we improve adoption as well long term. So that's the, that's what a system does, and, and that's the big vision of the uh, system. And of course, from globally, uh, this improves access because there are many places that they don't have ultrasound techs, and the cost of the ultrasound systems, the automated ultrasound systems, is a big barrier. So, so comparing to the mammogram the traditional way of doing it your tech it's like in terms of the inconvenience of it like the pain and and the inconvenience of it how different it is using your tech compared to the mammogram it's night and day because you know as as i mentioned mammogram is quite painful for many women also a lot of women don't want the x-ray ray the added x-ray radiation that comes with a mammogram. So, but our system has an automated scanner that attaches to a wearable. I have uh, I have examples of it, uh, and uh, and then we use machine learning to find uh, abnormalities and track changes in the tissue. So that's kind of the big vision of our platform. We, as I mentioned, we can capture the whole breast just two minutes. So that's substantially faster than uh, doing it with a handheld. And uh, part of that is because we are completely hands-free. Even with automated ultrasound systems, many of them out there, is uh, there is an operator that is holding a plate that is moving automatically. Our system 
is completely hands-free. And because of that, the images are captured in a repeatable way. And you can use that to monitor changes in the tissue, which I strongly believe long-term having access to historical and longitudinal data will allow us to make better, will allow physicians to make better decisions and will allow women and uh, patients to be more proactive about their own health. Do we have like some, any like statistical of how many women die every year because of not having the screen done on time to do anything about it? There's any statistics on that? We know, we know that every year about uh, 600,000 women die from breast cancer. So, but how many of them, yes. Uh, so how many of them are that do late diagnosis? Many of them. Breast cancer in general has 98% survival if it's caught in the early stages. So uh, you can imagine that most of those women who die from breast cancer is because of the fact that it was detected too late, unfortunately and already metastasized to other regions. And uh, as I said, so the exact number have to look, but majority of those cases uh, is due to late diagnosis. Breast cancer has very good prognosis uh, long-term uh, when detected in early stages, when it's still localized to breast tissue. Once it spreads to lymph nodes and uh, metastasizes beyond that, then your chance of survival goes from 98% to 25%. So uh, even though there are a lot of advances in therapeutic side and treatment of breast cancer, still your best bet with uh, not only breast cancer, with any cancer is uh, early detection because um, there's many, many avenues. Uh, there's operation, uh, there's surgery, there's uh, radiation, there's chemo. So once it's detected too late, the options are uh, less and less and the quality of life and the, um, the amount of treatment that you need to go through is also substantially worse and 10 times more expensive. The toll on the health system is also large. You know, a late-stage breast cancer costs about five to ten times more than early-stage breast cancer. So we're talking about billions of dollars in additional treatment costs uh, that uh, if it's compared to when breast cancer is detected early. And there are many, many solutions now on therapeutics and the drug sides that, that um uh, for early stage breast cancer that, uh, you know, there's even orals uh, that, uh, you know, uh, you can take for a management of breast cancer. So when breast cancer detected early, there are many, many more solutions for management and the long-term prognosis is much, much better. So how did it all start? Like you said that there, you, you had a friend that had a problem with a mammogram before, like how you, you got to this particular problem? Like how, how did you fight it and how it started? So I had a friend of mine who I lost to breast cancer because it was detected too late. And my co-founder, Shadi, went through a similar experience, very close family friend. She lost to breast cancer because it was detected too late. And we were both at a time when we're starting the company, both had jobs in the industry and we're talking about this issue. And, uh, uh, you know, we... We started the discussion that way is they got to be a better way for women's health. And uh, we both had experience with different aspects of ultrasound uh, systems. And uh, mine was on the sensor side and hers, uh, she had experience on the hardware side and on the signal processing side. And 
we started thinking, can we develop a system that is so compact, so automated, so easy to use? Uh, we, we put a focus on the user experience. And uh, can we then use machine learning AI to enhance the diagnosis and to enhance the results? So that's when the initial idea started. And we've obviously made pivots and uh, changes. But that was that's been the big vision always that how can we improve access and how can we make the experience better so that it is but it's better adoption uh, so uh, from day one that's been our experience and we we're still on that mission so so you have like a, a pretty impressive background like you have like a phd from stanford you have like a really a great career going on for you why bite the bullet and starting a new company like why not just keeping the academy or just stay in the private sector in doing like in big company going to like maybe a big pharma company or a big tech company and why just starting your own? Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said, uh, we were passionate about solving this problem and uh, we thought we had the best, uh, we still think we have the best solution for doing that. So we're passionate about this uh, specific mission and uh, also, you know, in a startup, you learn so many things and uh, so many sets of uh, skills and experiences that you don't in a big company or uh, academia. So it's definitely been an interesting and rewarding experience from quitting our jobs. We essentially jumped into it. We went through Y Combinator. We went through several accelerators. We went through rounds of fundraising and clinicals and uh, product development and, you know, FDA uh, submission and all of these things. These are things that we, you get to uh, essentially, for lack of a better word, you get to make your hands dirty and do a lot of different things. You have to, you, know, start, you have to roll up your sleeve and uh, do whatever you can. So I think it's a very uh, diverse and uh, enriching experience and uh, that we've enjoyed. Of course, it's stressful at times and uh, has a lot of ups and downs. So valid point is a lot easier to, uh, you know, work at a big company or, uh, you know, at um, maybe in academia to some extent uh, that they all have their own challenges, but startups are definitely challenging, but also you learn a lot and uh, you learn things that otherwise you wouldn't. So I think that's been, uh, that's been part of it. But I think the, the reason, the main reason we've been doing it, we're still doing it is when we talk to women who are going through breast cancer, we'll talk to friends. And I was recently, you know, uh, we're at a conference and we're showcasing our product and, you know, so many women reached out to me and said, you know, my mom uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer, mammogram missed and only ultrasound found it. And, you know, keep doing what you're doing because this is what affects a lot of women. So when we hear these stories from women who, uh, you know, their breast cancers either would have been missed or were missed and, uh, you know, found with an ultrasound, that's what motivates us, keeps us going because we, uh, we know that long-term this would have a huge impact on women's lives. And as I mentioned, we're right now focused on breast cancer. Uh, but there's potential applications in uh, other areas uh, of healthcare as well, which we know the, will be a big impact uh, globally on everyone. So, so that's that's why we're in it. But there's also, you know, a lot of learning that comes with it that uh, we've been along the other way. When you explain what Isona is doing for, like, when you talk with investors or partners or other people, and you explain the company, 
what in general people get wrong or what people tend to not understand about the company or about the, what you are doing? Some people think that we're immediately going to replace mammograms. So, and even though long-term we think uh, there's potential for some women to use uh, ultrasound for breast cancer screening. We know that, you know, they think that tomorrow we're going to go replace mammogram and the medical industry is slow and uh, it takes a while to develop a market and uh, grow. So it's a little bit from tax, uh, different from tax. So the other thing is that there's a lot of clinical development that comes with, uh, you know, uh, getting there. So you need to have a lot of clinical evidence and develop relationships with the medical community. Um, so those are things that is not necessarily as well understood in the tech industry. So And, and what's like the biggest problem you have with like the adoption of a technology like this? I think there's first, of course, there's like the whole... FDA approval process and, and the whole tests. But besides the like the, the clinical and the tests, like do you foresee any difficulty in actually getting this in the hands of patients in the in the day-to-day -day of women using it? Like what do you foresee as the biggest like challenging adoption of the of the technology? Of course, uh, there's, uh, there's some logistics of how uh, do we get these to women and how do we deploy this at scale. So those are some challenges. Also, uh, some other challenges is um, clinical validation that with uh, adding this to on a large scale along with uh, mammogram for uh, screening, uh, you're not adding additional false positives. Uh, so that's something that you have to prove to the clinical community so that you're not introducing additional, a lot of additional costs. So, and then uh, in general, you know, showing that your quality, image quality is uh, comparable to some of the other systems out there. So those are some of the things that you have to demonstrate before you can deploy the technology at scale. But there's a lot of physicians who are really excited about potential of about a portable and automated system that can expand access. And a lot of um, health systems are going towards a more distributed care model. They're trying to bring care to home and improving access. And our system is really uniquely positioned uh, to do that uh, for uh, for breast ultrasound. So that there's a lot of excitement on that front. There's a lot of market pool to, as I said, especially for home health care and for uh, distributed care models. So on that front, we see a lot of excitement and but you know there's a lot of logistics to figure out how to get this uh, product uh, uh, deployed at scale so and those are the things that we're working on clearly so and regarding like costs like how how does like the it compares with the solutions that we have today we plan to offer this as a SaaS-based model. So instead of selling the hardware, we plan to sell this as a per-scan or subscription-based, tier subscription-based model. As we're waiting FDA, I'm not going to discuss exact pricing, but uh, it will be comparable to other portable ultrasounds, uh, handheld ultrasounds, point-of-care ultrasound systems out there. And uh, uh, we plan to be very competitive and flexible on that front. So we have multiple pricing options available. And and as I mentioned, will be very competitive compared to the other point-of-care ultrasound systems. And the fact that you are an automated uh, solution and you are using machine learning in, in the process, when you are explaining this to 
like the medical community or the healthcare community, there's any pushback on the automation part of it or, or it's like welcoming from most of the, the professionals? What's the reception of it? Yeah, you mean on the AI side, so AI right now acts as clinical decision support, meaning that what machine learning does is that it triages, it detects the areas of abnormality, brings the attention of the radiologist to those areas and can give a probability of malignancies. But the radiologist will still be in the loop so in the, uh, in the near future. So for that reason, we've not seen pushback on the AI side. And the radiology community, in fact, is very excited about AI. So there's a lot of potential collaboration uh, that we're exploring on that front uh, uh, with uh, clinical PIs uh, for the development of uh, AI models. So uh, there's a lot of excitement in the radiology community. If you go to RSNA, which is the biggest radiology community, you see there's a big AI focus and there's a lot of uh, companies that are working in AI medical imaging. That's a really fastly, rapidly growing area and has been adopting. Uh, one of the challenges of AI medical imaging companies is companies who are purely software is they have to get integrated with other hardware systems or they can be purely cloud-based where the radiologists have to upload the images, which uh, takes some time to adopt and it's additional work, additional strain and the workflow, but uh, once you're integrated with a, with a system, then you know you have a lot of advantages. So for our system, the hardware and the AI are seamlessly integrated, and the, and the system was designed from the ground up to integrate with AI. With a lot of the current AI solutions, the AI was an afterthought, you know, like they had built the hardware, this hardware was already in the market, being used for many years, and then uh, they tried to integrate machine learning with it, you know, afterwards. We built the system with the fact that, you know, saying that AI is a key component of the system, which uh, was, you know, uh, we're working on the clearance for the machine learning side. But, um, you know, um, that's the, that was the system was built ground up to in the future be integrated with machine learning. And that's really important because we can uh, deploy the machine learning algorithms on the premise instead of having to uh, deploy it, even though the, all the um, data, the identified data will be uh, uploaded to the cloud and we'll use that data for further training of our models and further learning. But you can see the uh, results immediately on, the, on our software. So those are some of the benefits of a system that was uh, co-designed with the, you know, with having that in mind instead of saying, oh, let's design the hardware and then a few years down the road saying, okay, let's add AI to it because it seems necessary. Everybody's doing AI. We had that in mind from day one. So, yeah, and, and like regarding like the time frame, what time frame you guys are right now regarding like the the whole tests and approval, like when you guys expect to to have it ready for prime time? We uh, have submitted our FDA last year and we are awaiting the clearance very soon. So um, hopefully uh, this quarter, then, uh, you know, then we'll be starting our commercialization and uh, uh, market development activities. And regarding starting a deep tech company, what surprised you the most? Or one thing that you thought about that was really different that you discovered after you started the company? Like what surprised you one thing? It's hard. <laughs> uh, doing 
hardware is hard and doing medical devices is especially harder because uh, you have to go through quality system development and regulatory and validation and verification and validation activities. So there's a lot of things that need to happen in a medical device company that doesn't happen in a typical hardware company. And uh, also there's a lot of things that have happened in the hardware company that in the software company doesn't happen. And we have a complex system that has uh, not only hardware, but also software. Uh, We have 3D visualization software and reporting and annotation, but we also have been working on machine learning algorithms that will be integrated into the software. So we have quite a complex system. We have hardware, software, full stack software. We have machine learning models. So there's quite a lot of things that are uh, happening. That aspect is a complex system and requires a lot of different skill sets uh, uh, for development and uh, it requires a lot of experience. So uh, it's not, uh, you know, deep tech is not like something you can just pick up, you know, <laughs> on, the, on the way with a few, you know, uh, with a few hours of, you know, uh, learning. So it requires experience in terms of manufacturing, in terms of hardware development, everything requires a lot of uh, experience and it takes time is much slower than doing software development. So that's another thing that we've learned that uh, compared to uh, doing, you know, uh, uh, software development, uh, deep tech is, uh, takes more time and it takes patience, both on the, the founder's part and on the investor's part. So, But we've gone through a lot of um, the de-risking part of it and we are far, we're at a point that, you know, we've submitted our FDA and awaiting clearance. So it's quite an exciting time because we are transitioning from a purely R&D to uh, market development and commercialization. So, Yeah. How long did it take from going from the start, from the idea to now? Like like how, how many years you are into, into this company? Over six years. Uh, we started uh, talking about it, but, you know, we got into YC and that's when we, we officially full-time, we started working on it. And uh, from then on, we were still a really small team and uh, we we did some fundraising and then we also got some grants from uh, National Science Foundations that were a big help. Then we raised some venture capital, uh, rounds of venture capital, and now we are raising another uh, round of uh, um, capital. So uh, definitely, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a few years in making, but finally the FDA is coming. So how do you, it's like, Contrary to the like more traditional, like say SaaS and software startup that tend to have revenue earlier. So in the case of deep tech, it tends to take a lot of time to you have any revenue at all because you need to develop the tech and and uh, and get approvals. Like, how do you manage expectations of investors and and as well like communicate traction without having like revenue and other numbers to show like how do you as a ceo manage those expectations and show progress and show traction that you guys are moving along to the right direction yeah that's obviously hard pre-revenue because uh you know you're still talking about investors believing in you as founders so we do that by you know showing interest from the medical community you know engaging with the uh, medical community collecting clinical data 
So um, that's how, uh, you know, by showing them, you know, new product uh, uh, that uh, we've developed, the new features of the product that we've developed. So by engagement, uh, you know, uh, with potential partners uh, that could be uh, both distribution partners and also both acquirers. So by, by making those engagements before you have revenue, those are some of the tools that you can show that you're making progress. So. So you have like a really deep technical background. Like what were the challenges from having a PhD and knowing a lot about the engineering and the science of it and then transition as a CEO and getting more like the business part of running a company? Anything that you think that someone with like an engineering background and a PhD would bring to, to the table as CEO? Anything that helped you from your deep technical background in, in the in the position of a founder and a CEO? Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can talk, obviously, much more detail about the technology because I'm familiar uh, and I understand the basics of the technology. I'm not every day in the, involved in the technology development as a CEO, but I understand the technology really well as a deep tech CEO with a deep tech background. And also, I've been when times has been necessary, I've been able to help on the technical side, whether it's been, you know, uh, designing uh, packaging or, you know, on the clinical side. So um, uh, having gone through the PhD programs, I think one of the most important things that gives you is problem solving skills. So you're able to solve problems versus the specific topic that you did your research on. So I think that skill is applicable to other areas. As I said, whether whatever that needs to be in a in a startup, whatever needs to get done, it should get done, and you just need to help with it. At a time, you know, whatever they need help, I I roll up my sleeve and help. So that's uh, I think that part of it is helpful. So, and what would you would be your advice for someone starting a deep tech company right now? Depending on the experience, but one thing that I think is very helpful is to get some exposure working at, especially for people who are young and don't have a lot of industry experiences, working at a deep tech startup is very, very helpful because you learn a lot of the different skill sets and you get to experience different things. And uh, you can decide in which role, which position you can uh, do best and you want to be in. And if you want to do a startup at all, startups, as I mentioned, are tough and have a lot of ups and downs and they're not for everyone. So I think working at a, a startup, especially if you want to do deep tech, deep tech startup helps you first find out which positions you like best. And then if that's for you. So we are heading to, to the end. So I have like my usually two last questions. First, one book that, that you like. The Hard Things About Hard Things. Yeah, great book. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorites as well. It's pretty, pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. And second, if you are able to send a message to everybody on earth, what it would be? Be kind to each other. Nice one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marion. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Especially today with the, with everything that's going on, you know, yeah. with the war and everything, I think I think it's good to have some perspective on what really matters, and uh, you know, and be kind to each other. Nice, thank you so much. It was really pleasure to to talk to you. I hope to follow you guys, and I think that 
what you are doing is amazing and you have a big, big shot at saving a lot of lives. And this is what work should be about, making other people's lives better. And definitely you guys are doing that with, with your company. It's really amazing to see. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.